0: Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hey,
1: everyone. Today, I'm joined by a gentleman out of Colorado by the name of Orion Aeon. Uh, Orion created a um, foraging educational platform, discussion forum, etc. called Forage Colorado a number of years ago. And he's done some really neat things. And while he focuses on Colorado as the geography for, for foraging, a lot of what he he teaches and he talks about really applies to a lot of different areas. He talks about in this conversation with me how he went on a trip to Ireland and how so much of what he does in Colorado applied to the ability to forage in Ireland so very different geography halfway around the world and so I think you'll enjoy this conversation foraging is a big part of the uh lifestyle we like to promote although we don't talk about it maybe as much as hunting uh, and so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Orion Aon. Hey, Orion, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Mark? Uh, I am hanging in there. So uh, thanks for joining me on, on the podcast here today. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Uh, you know, it's springtime here. Uh, we're in early June and I've been watching your social media posts under Forage Colorado handle, uh, for those of you who want to check out what Orion's got going on, that's his Instagram handle. But uh, you've been doing some cool stuff, uh, harvesting everything from spruce tips to thistle to all, all kinds of things, and and having fun with uh, with plants and such.
0: Yeah, we're kind of in the the throws the the depths of spring foraging season right now, and um, you know it's 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 been. lot of fun to kind of make more video content this year and and share that stuff but i'm super excited to be on with you and and excited to see what we can get into today yeah
1: so maybe let's step back for a minute first of all i've asked you this before origins of your name one of the coolest names around orion aeon (laughs) did i pronounce it correctly you did yeah Okay, so uh, maybe just uh, tell people a little bit of, the, of that background, which I, I know it's a quick story, right? But uh, it's it is a cool name.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's a unique one. You know the the kind of the short and sweet of it is, um, my mom had a dream where I, I believe this is the story. Um, it's it's something like this. My mom had a dream where a voice told her to wake up and see her son and she woke up and saw the constellation Orion. Um, and then my last name is kind of, a uh, comes from a name change that my dad did uh, earlier in his life. So you combine them together and you get my uh, very unique combination.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's very, it's very cool. Um, So you mentioned your dad, and and I think you've told me before that uh, some of your outdoor experiences really started uh, as a child, your dad taking you out. I I always thought this was funny. Ice fishing in New Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, from Minnesota, coming from Minnesota myself, you know, we do a lot of ice fishing up here, but I, I, I think there would be very few people that would guess that you could go ice fishing in new mexico i'm guessing uh, up high elevation right
0: yeah i grew up in santa fe which is the highest capital in the u.s um and so we get some of those you know it's the southern kind of the southern tip of the rockies and we get some of those high elevation reservoirs um obviously some alpine lakes here and there but yeah mostly we we fished kind of in a couple different spots where you could catch trout and perch. Um, And yeah, that was sort of my, my early introduction to the world of wild food. You know, my, I remember stories of my dad taking me out, all bundled up like a marshmallow when I was three or four or five. Um,
1: Like that kid out of Christmas story. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So did you, um, would you punch punch hole through the ice with augers or would you use chisels or how would you get through?
0: You know, I don't remember in the early days, but for as long as I can remember, we had an auger, a mm-hmm. hand auger, you know, and, and early on there may have been chisels and, and axes involved, but um, I can't say for, for certain, but pretty much always hand augers. You know, the ice doesn't get super thick down here, pretty short season.
1: Like what what kind of uh, what how thick does it get?
0: You know in in Colorado at least where I am now if you hit up some of the higher lakes that have a longer season, you know the the lakes at alpine or or treeline, you could get up to a couple feet of ice. Oh, okay. Um but mostly it's 12 and under. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, a couple of so, feet. Wow, that that's that surprised me for you to say that. I thought you were gonna say, you know, eight inches, something yeah. like that. So that's well, interesting. you know,
0: those lakes up at twelve thousand feet, they freeze in October and they thaw in June. So mm. pretty long season up there for ice to form and it's cold always.
1: <laughs> right, right. So your if I recall, um, you know, your degree, your education, is in natural resources, right? And, and that's correct.
0: Yep. Specifically, fisheries, or was that? I min- I minored in fisheries. Okay. Yeah, so and, I did kind did, of the whole whole spread of natural resources. And did that uh, did that sort of
1: again spawn out of out of that uh, love of of going fishing as a as a kid? And
0: it did. Yeah, you know, that was it was kind of a last minute decision to study that field um I was actually slated to go in to study tech computer science and switched it last minute because I wanted to I was feeling the pull of of the environment and natural areas and being outside and so that's what I studied and it's yeah it's been a really cool career and has led to a lot of really cool opportunities and and obviously my side business Forge Colorado probably wouldn't exist if I hadn't studied these things. Um, and yeah, it was all kind of stemmed from that, that love and interest that was gained at a young age. So did you,
1: and and I think I remember, I mean, did your dad uh, pick mushrooms or did you do any foraging as a
0: kid? Yeah. My, the, this kind of the story I tell is that when we were, when I was 10, my dad had a friend that was into mushroom hunting and offered to take us with them. And so we went to their spot, um, or one of their spots in Northern New Mexico and had a really great day picking Porcinis, um, King Belites, chanterelles, and a handful of other species. And sort of that just like, it was such a cool and fascinating experience that that became an annual trip for us or, or, you know, a few times a year during the season, after the monsoon rains, we would go to our spots and some years we would do great. Other years we wouldn't do so good, but, um, you know, it was still, we would get out there at least once a year and that eventually morphed into, yeah, kind of diving in and learning as much as I could about mycology and, and edible plants and, you you don't
1: have a formal degree in mycology, though, right? I do not. No. Okay. So did, did was the was the um, the interest formed through the fun of the adventure and the hunt, the time being outside, the eating afterwards, uh, and the flavors? What, what how would how do you describe what sort of drew you in?
0: You know, I think all of the above um, are parts of it. It's just this, you know, one, mushrooms are just so fascinating. So getting out and, and picking these kind of almost alien fruiting bodies, you know, <laughs> that you can then take home and eat and they're often like gourmet. It's just, you know, that sort of that envelope around what is mushroom hunting is just kind of the full draw of it. but you know, there's also this, um, this sort of nostalgia that I have for it because I did it growing up. Um, there's, you know, I, I get sort of, I get brought back to those days, my early days, mushroom hunting, you know, every time I'm in the forest, especially if I, if I'm in there, you know, right after a rain and you get the rain and the, the smell of a conifer forest. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, one of the most calming and sort of centering experiences for me
1: i uh i couldn't agree more with you from the standpoint of you know whether it's just getting into 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 a conifer forest into a pine forest um those smells whether it's after rain or even a, a hot summer day um I've had experiences where I've done long drives, you know, up no, up into northern Minnesota in the middle of the summer. either they're heading to like the Boundary Waters, or up into Canada. I was up in uh, Provincial Park a few years ago, and it's like you'd you'd hit a long stretch where you'd go from you know more of a deciduous area up into those pine higher boreal forest areas, and you'd stop to get take a break, and you open up the door, and it just fills the air with those smells. And it's just like, and it is just like you said, it it always has been for me just a calming feeling a centering. And just like, I love, love that, that, that sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely.
1: So you're doing, you're doing mushrooms as, as, as a kid. Um, you keep doing it on, on your own then. And then do you, uh, you start looking at, at other things outside of your, your
0: basic shrooms. Yeah. So mushroom hunting growing up, you know, Mm -hmm. the annual trip and even during college, I would, um, I moved to Colorado for college and during my early college career, I would even go back home specifically for mushroom hunting. Um, just sort of the, the annual ritual. Um, and then, as I started studying more on the scientific side of these natural resources, you know, specifically trees and plants, um, I started becoming interested more in the scientific side of mushrooms as well. And so, I began studying the mycological side. So I, I sort of um, have this passion for mushrooms that goes beyond the food and into the study and interest of even the non-edible species just because I find them so fascinating. But that sort of that sort of interest in learning these things more and the connection to wild foods built into um learning edible plants as well. It's just sort of a natural progression of studying natural resources and being interested in wild foods and in you know shortly after my college career i was looking for community um more people to to learn with and share this information with and that led to me starting forge colorado and that quickly morphed from a community into my platform to teach other people and now it's this yeah crazy fast growing i mean i've got a very surprising to me amount of people that follow me on social media and (laughs) website and classes when I can fit them in. And yeah, a little side business that I never would have envisioned, you know, when I started it. So.
1: I think it's great. And I think you're doing a great job with it. I think the website's phenomenal. I think the, the, the videos you do on social media are great. As I mentioned, yeah, I love that the one you did the other day of the, uh, where you just cut the thistle down with your, uh, with your knife and then, and yeah. then eat the stock. Yeah. <laughs> and So I think opens people's eyes to something that they, they probably never thought of before. Like, like a thistle, which you think, wow, that, how could that be edible? I'd say, mm-hmm. I want to stay as far away from that plant as possible.
0: Yeah. And you know, part of some of the videos I create are just fun projects that I, I, I know would interest people, but not many people would do them and others are sort of like, Here's this very well known thing, like a thistle, that people despise and, and myself included in some instances. Um, some species are horribly invasive and and really hard to get rid of. But um, they're all edible. And so, you know, showing how to get through those spines and and make food out of this plant that can be a, a pain sometimes is I think captivating for people.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. You know uh, Jamie Carlson, who does a lot of foraging, uh, does a lot of the recipes on Modern Carnivore. I remember years ago him, him putting up, you know, stinging nettle uh, mm-hmm. recipes and, and making pastas and different things. And uh, yeah, I think the idea of eating things that have stinging and nettle <laughs> <laughs> in them are, is a is an interesting thing. So, you know, to and to that point, you know, what do you find when you have people coming out to take a, a class from you or you do a walk in the woods or what have you? Um in terms of the fears? Cause I think that's the biggest thing, obviously, right? Whenever you talk mushrooms, I think with the average person, there's always a good dose of, of fear related to, to the idea. And the, even the conversation like, Whoa, I, I don't think I'd ever do that. And, and obviously a lot of those are well-founded. Um, I mean, you get something like a, you, you, you get too close to an Amanita, that's not a, that's not a good thing. Um, but, (laughs) but I think, you know, obviously with the right types of guidance, um, it could be such a rewarding experience in the outdoors. Uh, and I think from a hunt fish lifestyle, sometimes, good corresponding, uh, access. In other words, you could be out fishing or hunting and foraging. Uh, and other times I think, uh, at a uniquely different period where if you just have an outdoor lifestyle, um, you, and you want to be out doing different things, great, great separate seasons from, from those other activities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to touch on in there. Um, the first, um, as far as, you know, apprehensions or kind of, you know, worries that people have, um, I mostly see them online. You know, when I'm doing in-person classes, people are kind of like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm here to learn, you know, I'm going to be receptive to what he has. But generally when I get those questions, it's, um, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I'm, I want to get into this, but I'm so afraid of the deadly species, or I want to get into this, but I don't know where to start. Or I'm afraid of, making myself sick, um, those sorts of things. And, you know, the, the concerns in regards to eating the wrong thing, those are very easy to solve. Um, and it's as simple as just don't put it in your mouth, you know, and and that's sort of a fun, funny way to say it, but really, if you don't know what it is, don't eat it and you won't get sick. Um, you know, in my 22 years of Foraging and eating wild foods, I've never been sick, um, and I stick to that rule myself. You know, I, I'm steadfast to it, and and the kind of more specific way to to say this rule that I that I've sort of created and and borrowed from other foragers who have talked about these topics. Um, I I use the rule of 100% confidence and 100% comfort. So, one hundred percent confidence means that, without a shadow of a doubt, you know what species you have, and you would not be told otherwise you're You're one hundred percent confident, no uncertainties, and then the comfort part comes with just um a personal feeling you know that's a it's sort of a, a moral or a personal choice. You might have studied a species and know the ins and outs, know it like the back of your hand but it's new and you might not be comfortable with the idea of eating this new thing yet. And that's okay. Um, There are some mushroom species that I was super comfortable identifying and didn't eat them for two years just because I wasn't comfortable with it yet. And so I try Mm. to get that point across, you know, it's, there's this excitement about it. Like, Oh, I'm learning all these cool wild plants and mushrooms and I can go out and eat everything. And, um, people can get excited. And then that's usually when they end up making a mistake. One, because they gather a bunch and they eat them all at the same time. And then something makes them sick and they don't know what it was. And two, um, if you go too quickly and create that foundation of sort of complacency, you're going to end up making a mistake. And um, I was actually told the other day uh, uh, a friend of mine mentioned that a family friend of his died several years ago because they got complacent and ate an amanita and that was the first time I had, like had some sort of like somewhat personal connection to someone that had right. actually died from eating the wrong thing and that really just comes down to complacency you know they' they got too comfortable with what they were doing and they didn't you know they didn't pay attention to all of their you know the rules that they normally do and the wrong thing and yeah you know, and, and,
1: and was that person who died were, were they were they a very knowledgeable forager
0: from my understanding they were pretty knowledgeable like had done it quite a bit um, and yeah just mixed up the species which which can happen when you're kind of getting into the white gilled mushrooms um, not so much in in the west or at least in Colorado but you know what midwest and eastern states where you have more of the deadly toxic amanitas, um, you know, those become more of a concern. I I
1: remember a a story about a friend of my dad's. So I I grew up, my, my dad was big mushroom forager. And, and, um, um, I remember a a story about a, a guy he knew who was very knowledgeable, uh, about mushrooms and s- similar situation I mean he had been picking all of his life and I think he was even an instructor and um yeah I think was and maybe even made a mistake of like was trying to do an educational piece on an amanita and um
0: yeah ended up dying yeah, so it's, the, <laughs> those the ones that are deadly are, are nasty you know and there's not a ton of species in in the us in North America I think we have less than a dozen deadly species. Um, You know, in Colorado, we have like three deadly mushrooms. Um, And I I suggest that people learn the deadly species as well or better than they know the edible ones. You know, be 100% confident in your ID of a deadly species too. Don't eat it. You know, like I said, these, these deadly mushrooms can't hurt you if you don't ingest them. You can yeah. pick them up. You can smell them. You can handle them. You can even taste them, as long as you spit out all the pieces of them. Hmm. As long as you don't ingest them, they're not going to hurt you. And you know, if you if you look up, um, you know, like mushroom identification resource, you'll often see tasting notes for the deadly species because you can nibble on them and get a biochemical feedback to help you identify them.
1: Interesting. So I think I'll just stay, stay far away from (laughs) (laughs) them. Yeah. Just, uh,
0: you know, don't, uh, don't put them in your mouth and you're safe. That's what it comes down to. So what do you, um,
1: you know obviously there's just the the activity of foraging which is which is enjoyable being out in the woods being on the hunt mm-hmm. i've got to a point where i use the word hunt to describe a lot of things that are actually more fishing or foraging but it, you are hunting in all yeah. in, really in, in all scenarios but um the prospect of the hunt for for whatever your your quarry is or an incidental side uh, um, cash of something, um, mm-hmm. is, is enjoyable. And, uh, obviously there's, there's, you know, the eating, the culinary side, but what do you think some, some of the other benefits are, are, are there, are there other benefits and, and, um, like from a standpoint of, of the nutritional value and, 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 um, and those aspects, do you, do you talk about those at all?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tie this into the pre the second part of your previous question, um, or at least comment in that, you know, getting out there and maybe as a hunter or a fisherman foraging ties in super well, because there are things that you can do while you're out hunting and fishing, but it's also something to kind of fill in the gaps, right? So springtime you can, you can fish, but, um, you know, it might be runoff if there's, if it's river fishing that you're doing. And so, you know, it might not be great. So instead you could go get spring greens or you can get them at the same time. There's turkey season, but that's not super long. And so around that you can pick morels and asparagus and, you know, um, spring mushrooms and the summer can be pretty dry as far as hunting goes, but you have a lot of fishing to do then, but you can also, you know, be picking summer mushrooms and and fruits and berries and nuts. So there's kind of this, this beautiful combination of all of these endeavors. And, you know, that's what, that's what our ancestors were doing as hunters and gatherers, right? They, they knew when all these seasons were and, and when certain plants and animals were in certain areas and when best to gather them to sort of Efficiently get their food for the year, um, and then the you know as as far as it goes nutritionally, um, compared to kind of traditionally cultivated crops, there's it's kind of hard to compare because there's not a lot of research being done. But just from a you know a logical standpoint, traditional agriculture is done on essentially sterilized fields right they're sterilized to only grow the crops that you want to grow in the most efficient and and to maximize the most crop um, and so when you're when you're talking about wild species they have to live through all sorts of droughts and poor soil conditions and you know whatever other stressors exist on them and so they're loaded down with a lot more nutrients just because they store that stuff for their own uses. And um, the other part of that is your diet is way more varied. So, you know, I think traditionally it's said that someone who's buying all of their food is eating like maybe 30 species a year. I probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 species a year. Um, And so, you know, I just, I have a much more varied diet, which is interesting and, and fun to work with in the kitchen, but it's also healthy. You know, it's, it's, you get to combine new flavors and and gain new nutrients that you maybe wouldn't normally get. And so there's, there's a lot of facets to that, that question, I guess.
1: I saw the other day you were, uh, picking then, uh, freezing lambs quarters and, uh-huh. uh, and, uh, Preparing, I think the, you had that under the theme of spring greens for winter eating or something like that, yep. right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and that's uh, I like the idea of, like you said, in terms of the 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 variety of things you're eating. And yeah, if you think about long term, how how very narrow our our diet has become, and obviously it varies by culture and and mm-hmm. area, because mm-hmm. there are a lot of cultures that relied upon one specific thing, but, um, it's pretty narrow and tight. And, and that idea of getting more variety into your digestion of, of varied plants that are nutrient dense, that, that have to survive and have that density to them. I think that's a, that's a great piece. Yeah. So you had talked about, um, uh, well, let me ask you this, I guess. Um, you know when it comes to foraging I, I i think of you know you got greens you got mushrooms you got berries you've got nuts uh here in minnesota we also have a grain or a seed in the fall that i like to go after which is which is wild rice mm-hmm. um and so even though that's more of a gathering than a hunt but uh cuz you eh, you still have to figure out which lakes uh, have done mm-hmm. well cuz it it has quite a, ver- a, a wide um span of whether uh, you get an effective crop or not. Yeah. But um what are the, are there did i miss anything there? Can you think of anything else sort of category-wise that you go after?
0: I would include like roots and tubers as well as kind of their own category just because they kind of have their own separate season. Yeah. And are one of the kind of few things that you can forage late or really early in the season or even in winter if you can get through the frozen ground. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think those are the major kind of the major categories: grains and seeds and nuts, fruits, roots, and above ground vegetation, which could include greens, shoots, flowers, flower buds, those sorts of things. And would you
1: say, uh, from your standpoint, I, you know, I don't do a whole lot of greens foraging. Something I want to do more of. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally like you said sort of in the we're in the height of the season right now of, of really good early season stuff are are there late season greens that are that are that are good that don't get too tough or bitter
0: there are some you know there's some species that stay tender throughout their growing cycle um generally a plant will toughen and become bitter as it puts energy into flower and seed production so When you're foraging greens, you're usually trying to get them before they flower, or in the process of sending up a flower stalk. If you're harvesting stalks, because they're putting all of their energy into producing that stalk, and so that makes the most tender and kind of best tasting, you know, point to forage it. But there are some species that stay tender through their growing cycle, and there are some species that will have new greens in the fall. Um, And these are generally annual plants that go to seed early. So uh, one instance of this could be mustards. Mustards come up. They're one of the first plants to sprout in the spring. They go to seed usually by late spring or early summer. And then they have a new crop in the fall that will usually overwinter under the snow. And so you can harvest those greens in this this kind of late summer and fall. the other aspect to this, if you live in a in a mountain state, is you can go up in elevation to get new growth. You know, you can follow spring up the mountain, essentially. Um, which is I like, which is kind I of like a, that idea. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a cool feature. And you know, to go on a slight tangent, that's that's also kind of a cool feature of the morel season here in Colorado and and some of the other Rocky Mountain states because our season in a good year, like last year, can last from April to September. You had
1: mentioned that to me before, which I think is just fascinating because I mean, like I, you know, I found some morels that were here early June, two weeks ago. I I, I got out a little bit and found, found a few. Um, a friend of mine up near the Canadian border just shot me a picture a couple of days ago. He had gotten a big haul in a, in a burned out area. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it'll sort of Peter out here pretty quick, but for you to have that, uh, long season by being able to vary your elevation is pretty fascinating.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a nice kind of advantage to being in a mountain state. Um, you know, we get the yellow morels in April and May and the low elevations in, not, I wouldn't say the typical habitats from a Midwest or, or Eastern state standpoint, but um, riparian, cottonwoods, low elevation kind of river habitats. Um, but then starting in June, we get the black morels, which start fruiting in there. We have two types. We have natural black morels and we have burn black murals. Um And they'll start fruiting in both habitats, depending on conditions and, you know, we really need consistent rain for the mushrooms to do well here, um, which we've been getting so far.
1: So are you with your day job, are you out in the field at all? Or are
0: you doing office work? I am a mix of office and field, but my field work is on site. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Growing trees. So. Okay.
1: So it's not like you're out wandering around a whole lot where you get good opportunities to be, uh, doing some, picking some mushrooms. No, over your, uh, I'm not own.
0: doing forests, forest inventory or anything where uh, <laughs> you can also kind of pick mushrooms and count trees. <laughs>
1: right, right. So heading back to the, uh, to the spring again, the season we're in right now is sort of the springtime, tender mm-hmm. greens. Um, talk a little bit about spruce tips, if you would, because I, I, I know I saw you, you you'd done some stuff on spruce tips and, and pine cones yeah. recently making a syrup and, and, um, uh, I think spruce tips have become, as far as uh, foraging, I've seen a lot in recent years. It's become sort of popular for for a lot of a lot of aspiring foragers. I think to to uh, to pick spruce tips.
0: Yeah, that's you know, it's one. It's kind of it's a a very recognizable sort of plant or part of a plant to go after, right? You know, most everyone can probably identify a spruce tree or can at least learn how to very quickly. They're pretty easy to identify. The spruce tip, which I'll get to in a second, is a very versatile ingredient. It can be used in sweet and savory applications. It has a nice, um, it varies tree by tree, but it has a nice sort of citrusy, piney, a little bit bittery kind of, like it kind of reminds me of citrusy hops. If you're a beer drinker. Um, And so it's sort of an, an interesting and fun ingredient to work with as well. And so, what a spruce tip is, it's the new needle growth for the season. So, if you imagine a tree putting out new leaves, these are the new leaves of the spruce tree. And they emerge in this little papery package from the tips of the branches. And as the season progresses, the season's pretty quick, you know, it's maybe a month long. Where they're they're ideal, it might even be shorter, um, kind of depending on your region. But as they emerge and and get larger, they push this papery husk off of them, and they're in this kind of tight little conical package, and you can just pluck those off. Um, I always suggest kind of doing so sustainably because it is the new growth of the tree. So you want to leave some to become more branches to produce more tips next year. And allow them to, you know, increase their surface area to gather nutrients from the sun and the air. Um, but yeah, what, what I advise when you're harvesting spruce tips is to taste a couple from the tree because each tree tastes a little different. So I have, you know, several areas where I collect these. Spruce are pretty common landscape trees. And so that's another reason why they can be this can be attractive for new foragers because they're usually pretty easy to access, and you know I'll taste one tree, and it'll be just very strong kind of tart citrusy flavor and little bitterness, and a tree right next to it might be um, very little citrusy kind of strong maybe resinous and bitter flavors, and so I taste each tree and then I decide you know which ones I'm going to collect from and. From there, it's sort of options are endless. Really, there's, <laughs> um, you know, I recently posted a video about spruce making spruce tip syrup, which is a process of mixing sugar and spruce tips in an even volume and allowing them to sit out until the sugar, through osmosis, pulls liquid from the tips and dissolves into a syrup, and. The end product after about a month of, of doing this um, is sort of this like tangerine flavored sweet syrup that, you know, it's it's really unique and something you can't really get anywhere else. Um, but they can be used for ice cream. They can be made into pickles. They can be made into finishing salts and, and sugars. They can be just eaten raw. Um, there's uh, an awesome spruce tip ice cream recipe out there from Alan Burgo known as forager chef. One of my favorite recipes ever with spruce tips. Um, and, and so many other options as well.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, the variety of things you can do is, is, uh, is really cool. Um, along the lines, you mentioned Alan, um, Alan had, uh, done, um, something with, with black young black walnuts recently. I don't know if you've ever done that. And and Jamie Carlson had picked that up from he'd talked with Alan about it. And so we just did a a foraged cocktail uh event uh, at the BHA rendezvous a few weeks ago in Montana where he made old fashions, black walnut old fashions, and the the garnish was a young black walnut that had been that had been stewed. And, uh, oh my gosh, it it was, it was fun. <laughs> it was so amazing. And it was fun to see people's reactions as to what it was. Some people thought it was, it was a fruit of some sort. Other people thought it was chocolate.
0: Hmm. Um, it was, it was really interesting. That is interesting. You know, I, I've made no before, which is, okay. uh, you know, uh, an alcohol infusion of young black walnuts that is sort of generally spiced and, and aged and it, it, i still have a jar of it in our pantry it's delicious um, and i used alan's recipe for that batch that i made but black walnuts aren't super common in colorado so my only way to get them is traveling um so yeah when i made that no i had actually found some young black walnuts when i was in minnesota last summer uh, okay my friend tim clemens brought me some he's a foraging instructor in the twin cities area
1: i forgot you've got that that minnesota connection uh so we'll have to when you come up this year i've got six black walnut trees in my yard so uh yeah. you can you can stop on over and uh and get some well i haven't i haven't had a chance to inspect how the crop looks looks this year
0: perfect yeah you know i'm I don't know when the ideal time to collect young ones is. It's probably right about now.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm thinking. It's probably about now. Definitely. But, um,
0: yeah. I was able to find some July last year that were small enough to use for No And yeah, I, I crack that jar open every once in a while for a, a treat. <laughs> oh yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, I just mentioned, you know, I've got black walnuts in my yard. You, you mentioned spruce being a frequent landscape tree. Um, what about uh suburban or even urban foraging? Do you uh do you ever talk about that with people in terms of things they can do right in their yard and right right in the area where
0: they live? Yeah, I do. You know, I don't I don't frame it in a way that it's separated in some way from general foraging. I I just sort of encompass it and If someone has expectations of foraging being like this wild thing that you have to go somewhere for, I will sort of try to break those down a little bit into, you know, this idea that you can just step out your door and start picking wild food. And that's true in almost any place, unless you uh, are heavy handed with the roundup in your yard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Not a good thing. Not a good combo. <laughs> yeah. You know, don't step out of your door and, and eat the dandelions you just sprayed. Um, and maybe, you know, if you'd like to get into foraging, maybe um, give the roundup a break and choose an alternative method and let that stuff kind of, you know, work itself out of the system for a couple of years and then start foraging in your yard. Um, but that, that idea of it's something that you can do anywhere at, at almost any time is what's attractive in one of the many things that, that attracts me to it. It's sort of like, you know, just as an example that popped into my head, my wife and I were in Ireland in 2019 or yeah, 2019 for our honeymoon. And, um, she, <laughs> she, she tolerates a lot of my stuff very well, but you know, we were, <laughs> we were at, um, one spot and I was taking pictures of strawberries and and sorrel and I was pointing out the wild mints and nettles and, Looking at mushrooms that you know were, were growing, and just sort of this place that I had never been, and my knowledge of pretty much Colorado Southern Rockies species translated just as well over there to a lot of things. And so, you know, the idea being that y- you can take the knowledge you have and really sort of use it anywhere, if you know you're you're comfortable with that and, and into it enough. Right? The dandelions grow all over the world. So if you know a dandelion, you can you can eat a dandelion anywhere. <laughs>
1: right, right. Um, you had talked about uh, in, in the past, you have seen actually, actually you on that sort of right out your door theme. Um, I think I saw you done a video once where didn't you just go out like right outside to grab stuff? You, you grabbed a tumbleweed. Mm-hmm. I think you said is that so so obviously not not something we have here in Minnesota what uh what what exactly uh what exactly is that and what kind of a flavor does that does that give you
0: yeah you know we have three kind of major tumbleweed species um or tumbleweed plants these are just kind of annual plants you know being that they grow up, go to seed, and die in one year. That's the term annual if, if people are not familiar with that. Um, and their seed dispersal method is to shear off from the ground and roll away in the wind. And as they roll, they release seeds. So that's why they get the name tumbleweed. And the, the major species we have or the major plants that we have in Colorado um, are all edible. There's three of them. Um, Cochia, which is a huge problem for agriculture um, it's that's cochia is its old scientific name um, its current name is Basia and it's it drops so many seeds it just it's pretty surprising you can get a full field of the stuff um, you know gone unchecked but it's also edible it's kind of it's not a great edible plant you know I sort of rank them in terms of like how, drawn I am to foraging them and kocha I have right outside my front door and I rarely eat it just because it's it's a little fuzzy and, you know, it's just kind of a mild green. It's not super exciting. Um, the other common one is salsola, sometimes called Russian thistle, but it's not actually a thistle. It's in its own genus. And I believe that genus also changed recently to Kali, K-A-L-I. but it's mostly called salsola, and when it's young, it has these sort of it just kind of looks like little green strings on a stem, essentially, and they're kind of tender, they have a little bit of a crunch, kind of a succulence to them. Um, they can you know be used in pickles or eaten raw, chopped up, and added to stuff. Their flavor is pretty mild, not not much to add, but um, that texture is nice that you get from them. But as they mature, they get these like sharp spines on them and become a little bit less attractive to forage. So that's generally an early season one that you want to get if you're going to forage it. And then the third is tumble mustard, which as the name would suggest is in the mustard family. And to go uh, on a little aside here, the mustard family is super fascinating to me. One, because it's huge. There are thousands of species. And they're all edible. Some of them are either too bitter or too spicy, hot, like that mustard heat to make it worth it. Um, But also, many of our commonly cultivated crops are in the mustard family, and many of them are from the exact same species, Brassica oleracea. So broccoli, cabbage, kale, things like that are all the same species that have been selected for different parts of their growth form, um, and they're all mustard. And so this this tumble mustard is is another mustard family that spreads its seeds by tumbling.
1: I was not aware that those uh, cultivated plants were part of the mustard family. That, is, yeah. that does make it large. Uh, there are large many category. more too, yeah. Yeah. Choy, I mean, uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, a very invasive and and problematic uh, to to a lot of people uh, mustard be like the garlic mustard, right? Which mm-hmm. which yeah. is a nice, easy foraged plant that you can do a lot with.
0: Yeah, garlic mustard is great. You know, it it can be a little strong for some people. You know, it has a little bit of like a a bitterness and a, a mustard heat to it. Um, but it's super common, especially in the Midwest and in Eastern states. Um, less so here. There are patches of it, but it's not quite as bad as some of the other states that it's located in. But yeah, it's super invasive, and there's debate on whether foraging and eating it or pulling it up even helps. You know, once they get established. But there's also some research coming out that shows that they kind of just like dwindle off after a while. Um, They Hmm. sort of will take over an area and do their thing and then just kind of leave. So I don't know all the details about that, but um, I had read an article, I think, last year about that topic.
1: I definitely see them come and go in my yard, uh, some years that just thick and, and then I won't see them for a number of years and, and then, you know, they'll come back with a, with a vengeance, but, um, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's, you know, invade plants that are invasive like that, which, you know. You don't really have to worry about uh over harvesting or, or the ethics of the harvest, if you will. Mm-hmm. Maybe step back for a moment and you talked about um the spruce tips and and sort of responsibly harvesting those. What Generally speaking, when it comes to foraging, do you have sort of an overall guidance that you will give people when it comes to responsible and ethical harvesting of uh, of things that you forge?
0: Yeah, you know there are people that say you know like the thirty percent rule or the fifty percent rule where you never take more than thirty percent or you never take more than fifty percent and I think those are too general um what I teach and what I practice is just to, this might sound kind of a little bit cliche, but I sort of will ask the plant, right? And what that means is I'm looking at its environment. I'm looking at how it's growing. I'm looking at how healthy it is. I'm looking at the surrounding area to see if there are more of them. And I make my decisions based off what I see in the area. So if, if i'm let's let's do um nettles for example if i'm collecting nettles and in my area they aren't fields and fields of nettles like there are in in the midwest and eastern states they're they're pretty sporadic and so i selectively harvest those based on the size of the cluster and how many are around um and that might be taking you know one for every 3 but it's it's really more based on what I'm seeing than opposed to some sort of guideline that I have. And then as mm. far as you know, I'm going to stay on plants for a minute. As far as uh, non-native invasive or noxious weeds, um, you know, if it's an invasive plant, a damaging invasive that maybe your um, state or county considers a noxious weed, have at it. <laughs> They'll, they'll thank you for it just make sure you're not foraging in an area that's been treated recently you know make sure you're collecting healthy plants if you're not sure maybe don't eat it um, but you could still pull it up you know it's you're, you are helping by removing these invasives and and noxious weed species in most cases um, and then there's this other category that is kind of a it's kind of a weird gray area um, and these are these plants that are not native but have become naturalized and sort of act like a native um, you know one instance of that could be feral asparagus, right so feral asparagus or asparagus as a plant is native to the Mediterranean area, but it was brought here during colonization, cultivated as a food and Over the years, escaped cultivation became feral and has spread to every state in the lower 48. So you can find asparagus in any state in lower 48. Some have less, some have more, but it's not native, right? So there's this sort of like, there's this weird feeling about asparagus it's like okay i want to practice sustainable harvest i'm going to take you know the early spears and leave some to go to seed because i want more asparagus but it's also not native right so right. you sort of have to consider that is it doing damage to the environment the system that it's in and generally if it's not kind of uh, a damaging invasive or a noxious weed they're they're kind of you know i would consider those one that i would treat with, you know, sustainable practice, but it's, it can be, it can be kind of a a questionable subject, um, in some instances. And then the, uh, (laughs) the earth shaker, the, when it comes to mushrooms, um, this is always a fun one to talk about because people for some reason have these weird ideas built up in, in their minds. Um, whether it's from, our lack of understanding of how mushrooms work and initially considering them plants instead of their own thing. Um, and, and if you aren't aware um, to anyone who's listening, to this the mushroom kingdom is its own kingdom of life. So we have animals, plants, mushrooms, and some little things that nobody but scientists care about. Um, and so, you know, the kingdom fungi. Works in its own ways. It has its own biological and physiological traits that aren't the same as a plant, right? So you can't really compare them to a plant in the ways that you would compare a plant to a plant. So when that comes to harvesting mushrooms, there's this sort of belief, and and it's a myth that you need to cut a mushroom. And if you pluck it, you're damaging it and you're not going to get any next year or that mushrooms will, especially morels, will grow from cut stems. None of that is true. Um, Morels and all mushrooms are the fruiting body of the mycelium. The mycelium lives in the ground. It's um, built up of small structures called hyphae. They travel through the ground. That's the fungal body. The fruit is the mushroom. And so I just said comparing them to plants is not something that you should do. But to make a metaphor that's easy to understand, you could, if you needed to, for understanding purposes, compare them to picking an apple off of a tree. If you pick an apple, you're not going to hurt the tree. Um, If you leave an apple on the tree, it is eventually going to rot, fall off the tree, and go to waste. So there's big arguments about picking all the mushrooms in an area, cutting them, picking them, plucking them, twisting them. <laughs> <laughs> and there there is some uncertainties in it. We're still learning. Um, but there are several long-term studies that have shown that there's no – Difference on population returns in subsequent years from cutting or plucking mushrooms. Hmm.
1: Interesting. I had I had uh, I hadn't heard that research, and I know there is the debate always on it, and it's interesting yeah. to to hear your perspective. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, and and there's people that that I always see online people complaining about people taking all of the mushrooms or taking too many and not leaving any to, uh, you know, lead to future years. And that could be true of fruits, you know, because fruits have seeds inside of them. So if you, you don't leave any to produce seeds for spreading, you won't get more of that type of fruit plant, but mushrooms spread by spores. And once they come out of the ground and, start to mature they're releasing spores constantly and as long as you aren't picking them before they've started releasing spores you're actually helping because as you carry them through the forest they're releasing spores
1: and I know that's where a lot of people will do uh, like mesh bags right for mm-hmm. they'll forge with mesh bags or with baskets that that are mm-hmm. not that are porous that are not so those seeds are gonna are going to, or I'm sorry, the spores are going to be transferred. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. So seasonally speaking, stepping back, you know, again, looking at, looking at everything, how does an annual cycle of foraging look to you? And, and, um, you know, we've touched on this a little bit, but I mean, uh, I think you've talked a little bit about, you know, in the spring, you're, from a mushroom standpoint, you're getting into, into oysters, morels, then summer, you get into bleeds, chanterelles. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the fall could be, could be different things, but then you've obviously got later season berries uh, maturing. Do you do berries? I, I presume to.
0: Yeah. You know, we don't have a huge diversity of berries here. We have. Currants and gooseberries, you know, maybe a dozen species, um, raspberries, strawberries, a few others that are kind of, you know, pretty small or, or negligible. You know, we don't get like the black raspberries. We don't get blackberries. Um, we have some black elderberries, but they're generally focused or found mostly in landscaping, urban landscaping. Um, we don't have a ton of nut trees um black walnuts are pretty rare but they they can be found on occasion but yeah do you I get mean, hazelnuts or not we do have beaked hazelnuts they're okay. they're native to some to colorado but they're pretty sparse so yeah we don't we don't have a huge nut crop you know most of our tree cover is coniferous so yeah, yeah. And then, do you?
1: Um, what about you know winter winter season for for you from a from a
0: foraging standpoint? Winter, you know, in most four season states, winter is kind of um, downtime from foraging. It's time to process anything and 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 start eating the stuff that you've set aside, right? And winter, I usually take kind of a winter break from, from everything. I, I slow down on my social media presence. I let my creativity rejuvenate for the season. Um, I spend time ice fishing. That's probably my favorite, one of my favorite types of fishing to do. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, work on, work on things that I haven't had time to work on during the warm months. Um, I do some hunting in early winter, but yeah, that's, there, there are some foraging options for people that, that want to get out and do it. You know, I mentioned roots earlier. There are some fruits and nuts and seeds that persist on plants through the winter. Um, Rose hips could be a good example of that. They hang on to the plant through the winter. Um, so there are options, but yeah, generally it's it's pretty light.
1: Yeah. Well, if people are interested in, uh, taking a trip to Colorado or they live in Colorado and they, and they want to get some, uh, get some education with you, what, uh, where, where should they go?
0: Yeah. Um, my website is forgecolorado.com. I have articles that I post. I've been posting more regularly this year. I've, I've changed my writing style and writing habits and that has led to more articles, um, which is fun. So, there you can find information about me, information about my class offerings, which are admittedly pretty limited this year. I have some personal projects and, and other life stuff going on that has limited how much I can offer. But um, yeah, I'm always open to helping people. So, you can get in touch there. And then my social media Forage um, Colorado on Instagram. Pretty active on there. Um, I post pretty regularly, and I also have a TikTok. That's just my name, Orion Aeon. That's you know the same deal. I started that last year, just kind of for fun, and and after a nudge from my friend Gordon, who has a huge social media following as uh, fascinated by fungi. And, uh, yeah, he came out to Colorado and gave me the okay. nudge to to get on TikTok and start posting some videos. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Was, how are you, was how was you a, finding
1: that? TikTok's, we've we sort of got an account, <laughs> but don't do much there.
0: <laughs> you know, it's a different you, world. It's a different world. It's. I find it to be a lot of fun. Um, I have a, a good workflow now where I edit my video content outside of either platform on my phone, and then I push the same video to both platforms. And uh, yeah, it works well for me so I, I enjoy it, I think it's a fun platform you know once you get the algorithm to uh show you what you want to see I think it's uh I think it's a worthwhile place but yeah, yeah,
1: well, yeah. I want to make sure yeah people go please do check out i've I've uh you know watched a lot of your instagram ones and uh and they're great yeah. and uh very very educational and insightful so Well, we're going to, we're going to have to do, uh, do some more stuff. We'll do it again in the future, either on the podcast or like we talked about, we'll, we'll probably put, uh, an introduction to foraging out on the modern carnivore website, uh, Mm -hmm. by Ryan. And, um, and, uh, when you're up, up in Minnesota next, uh, let's, let's connect up.
0: Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll have to maybe chat more about the, uh, the fishing and hunting side of things and, and how that pairs with foraging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, both from uh, adventure as well as uh, flavor pairing. Uh, I think that would be a, a great conversation. So, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Ryan. Yeah, thank you, Mark.
0: Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can
1: continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.